You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Adam? Good, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for making some time today. We are going to talk uh, Blue Line Flies, uh, a business you have going out there. We're going to talk about your YouTube channel, uh, some things you have going on. Um, I'm interested in also streamers and bass, a hot topic, I think, for many people around the country. Uh, Before we jump into all that, take us back real quick to fly fishing, how you got into it. What's your first memory of fly fishing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, so I'm from uh, North Alabama, which certainly isn't known for our fly fishing, um, more so known for conventional bass fishing and, uh, kind of grew up in the thick of things in the conventional bass world, uh, kind of grew up on a lake that pretty regularly hosts the Bassmaster Classic. Um, hmm. yeah, so it's definitely a whole different world down there. Um, started of course, like most kids, conventional fishing with like a spinning reel, whatever, um, mm-hmm. kind of got more interested, started trying the whole bait caster thing. And actually uh, went on a family vacation when I was at some point late elementary school to a spot in the Smoky Mountains, uh, Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And my uncle was a fly fisherman and uh, or still is a fly fisherman. And uh, I saw him. He kind of had some of his uh, you know small stream trout gear. And I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> um, and so he let me cast a little bit, kind of taught me a little bit of how to cast and and. I just loved getting out in the river. And even before that, I was, uh, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed river fishing more. Just you get to walk around, you get to be out there. It's more enjoyable to me than, uh, you know, sitting on the bass boat. And uh, that's kind of how I got started. Into, that's kind of how I got introduced anyways into fly fishing and uh, really kind of took it up from there. Being around North Alabama, you know, I not a lot of people had were fly fishing in creeks or streams or anything, but I never knew it was, it was almost kind of like, well, why? Yeah. Like, it's just another type of fishing. It's just another way to fish. And even still to this day, that's kind of how I view fly fishing is it's just another way to catch a fish. It's not that much different to me than, you know, a conventional gear fishing or, you know, whatever. So, um, kind of ended up getting a fly rod uh, combo from my, my parents, bought me one they were very supportive of me getting into, you know, into fishing and doing outdoor activities. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of my success can certainly be attributed to them. So, uh, they got me in my first fly rod kit, uh, came back home and I still wanted to fly fish just because I wasn't in the Smokies anymore. Didn't mean I didn't want to fish anymore. So kind of my first real memory of it is going down to the pond by the house. And, you know, you used to, 
uh, we didn't have, there's no fly shops. You couldn't buy flies or anything, but, uh, Walmart sold a little thing of, uh, like brim poppers. Hmm. So my, the first flies I ever bought were from Walmart, <laughs> little nice. cork brim poppers. Nice. And, uh, I remember going to the, you know, I'd ride my bike to the golf course pond and started catching a little brim every once in a while. I'd catch a bigger fish like a bass. And then my mom would drop me off at the Creek when, you know, she was going into town to do errands or something. She'd drop me off at the Creek and come back, pick me up right around dark. And, uh, so when I was down there, I started fishing for, you know, continuing to fish for brim. And every once in a while I would catch a smallmouth. And now for granted back then I was catching, you know, the little guys, sure. but even then I was like, Holy cow, how the, you know, these things fight, they pull like crazy. I need to figure out how to actually catch these things instead of just, you know, to me, it was random when I would catch one, um, back then. And, and I think kind of that pursuit of like, or at least that question of like, how do I catch more of these kind of ultimately changed my life a little bit. That's it. So it comes back to smallmouth. Yep. Yep. That's it. That's it. What, what is, so in Alabama, you, you said North Alabama, if you look at the other states kind of adjacent in that area, you know, Mississippi, Georgia, are there, are they very similar in the species, the fishing, or is Alabama a little bit different? And I, is, I guess the Northern part of the states, you kind of get a little more of the a different environment with, with kind of closer to the mountains. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, a little bit. Um, North Georgia is pretty similar. North Georgia has more trout than, uh, North Alabama does. Um, and then, well, North Alabama has no trout, uh, but North Georgia has uh, definitely some trout mountains and some native trout that live up in the high high country. Um, North Alabama is pretty unique because we have, uh, it's the southernmost extent of the range, the native range of the smallmouth bass. So uh, the Tennessee River kind of cuts straight across the top of North Alabama and any tributary to the Tennessee River, smallmouth bass should be native. Mm. So. Uh, we have a really long growing season for smallmouth bass, and we have a lot of bait. So our fish can get big quick, and certainly our you know the the river systems can support a lot of fish uh, just because of how diverse it is. Um, one of the cool things with North Alabama is that North Alabama and and really essentially Northwest Alabama is the most biodiverse spot in the continental U.S. Oh wow. So more species of crawfish, fish, shiners, little mollusks and snails and all sorts of stuff in the rivers, more species than found anywhere else in the U.S., which is really pretty cool. That is cool. So, yeah. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, going north, well, going north into Tennessee is uh, you start running into, there's some more trout, tailwaters, stuff like that. Really good uh, bass fishing continuing. And then uh, Mississippi kind of changes because it gets a little further down the Tennessee river. Um, it gets a little more sandy, silty bottom instead of more of that rocky bottom that our smallmouth tend to like. Um, so typically we don't fish kind of smallmouth stuff kind of dies out. Once you kind of get towards Mississippi, that's going to be more largemouth fishing or of course coast, you know, great redfish and stuff over there. Sure. Yeah. And redfish. That's right. Wow. This is great. And what town are you in now? Do you actually live in? So I actually live in Salt Lake city. Oh, you're in Salt Lake City. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I moved to Salt Lake City about five years ago with my wife's work. Um, and we actually are moving to Boise oh, in wow. uh, next spring. Jeez. We're going to be almost neighbors by that time. Yeah. 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 We <laughs> sure will. Great. We'll be close. I just drove through Boise on my way to, um, well, not far from me right now. We fished the uh, kind of the South Fork of the Snake and the Henry's Fork here this last week. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. my, that's my usual stomping grounds nowadays. Yeah. There you go. Wow. So this is good. I didn't even realize about, or maybe you told me, I, I didn't realize about the change, but so you've been there and how has that been? So moving from Alabama to uh, Salt Lake City, kind of the big change out West. You know, culturally there's a, <laughs> yeah, a pretty a big difference. difference. <laughs> um, but no, it's, uh, it's been great. My wife and I, you know, we both love to ski. We love the outdoors. We love doing a lot of stuff outside. And I still certainly travel back to Alabama a ton. My business partner in Blue Line that y'all would know from the videos is Hobo Steve. Yeah, Hobo Steve, still, right. <laughs> yeah, so he he still lives in Huntsville, oh, cool. um, North Alabama, where I grew up. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm still, my family's still there. My wife's family lives outside of Atlanta. So we still uh, still travel back to the southeast a lot. Still have a base there. Have, you know, can come in and steal my dad's truck. <laughs> and sure. uh, still have a boat in the Southeast. So makes it really easy for me to still be able to fly back and do all the fun stuff I want to do in the Southeast. That's right. um, so yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Good. So, well, I think we're going to talk a little bit more on streamers and, and that today and, and definitely smallmouth bass. Cause that, you know, I seems like I asked the question sometimes like your favorite species, you know, sort of thing. And, and it, it seems like people either say tarpon or smallmouth bass seems like those <laughs> are, you know what I mean? Like those are the two, but but talk about Blue Line because you have an actual business, uh, which is another big step. When did that come to be? When did you start uh, Blue Line Flies? Yeah. So, uh, well, according to the IRS, we started in 2017. Uh-huh. Um, other, we uh, Actually, that's when we kind of became official. Um, I was guiding quite a bit at the time as well and uh, needed a company to guide under to actually have, you know, go legit and be able to actually have, you know, business insurance and all the fun stuff that you have to have for guiding. But I've always been a fly tire. I started tying flies when I was about 10, kind of actually circling back to the story about, you know, kind of starting out growing fishing in North Alabama was that there were no fly shops. So if we ever went to the Smokies, maybe if we ever maybe went to Atlanta or potentially Nashville, or if we would ever travel out West, uh, as we used to take like family ski trips to Utah. And so in the middle of winter, I'm trying to buy flies in Utah to use next summer in right. Alabama. Or I remember flipping through the massive Cabela's, you know, they'd send over like the Cabela's Bible, the hardback yeah, and yeah. you could you know flip through and so I kind of t- started tying flies out of necessity and uh, became a fly tire because of that. So I started imitating a lot of the uh, baits that the conventional bass guys were using. You know, swim baits or crawfish baits or, you know, trying to imitate a soft plastic, but something that I could throw on a fly rod. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's kind of how I got started fly tying and started working in the industry a little bit and uh, was managing a fly shop and started realizing that it was difficult for me to find bass flies. Hmm. Um, most bass flies on the market were either saltwater flies or repurposed kind of saltwater flies, uh, trout streamers, which I don't think had the correct hooks or poppers. Hmm. And unfortunately in the area that I did grow up in, we do have some awesome bass. We have some great bass fishing, but topwater stuff does not work very well from where I'm right. from. Okay. So unfortunately the popper game doesn't work great. So it's mostly that big streamer pattern is what we're throwing and what they're looking for. And, uh, either crawfish or bait fish is, is typically what we're throwing. So the popper game, you know, didn't work for me. So I kind of saw a hole in the market. I've kind of always been a little bit of an entrepreneur. I guess we kind of already mentioned the, uh, you know, the 
Zuzu project that we kind of have going on. I started buying and selling cars at a pretty young hmm. age and uh, have been a big, you know, kind of vintage four wheel drive fan for a long oh, nice. time, kind of kind of before it was cool. Um, so I've kind of had a entrepreneurial mindset, I guess, for a long time. And uh, it's just like, man, I, I think we could figure out how to actually, the you know, if I need these flies, there's bound to be other people who need them as well, who kind of see this hole in the market. And I want to produce a fly that can fill that hole in the market. So was talking to, you know, again, my best friend and business partner there, Hobo Steve. And uh, I was like, look, which is kind of funny because he's actually the numbers behind Blue Line. Oh, which nice. You definitely would not think that, but he's <laughs> like a math genius. Oh, cool. And uh, so told him kind of the idea. He was like, yeah, I love it. Let's figure it out. And in talking to him, I was like, if we cannot figure out how to get a quality fly at a price point that makes sense, then we're not doing this. He was like, yep, totally agree. We sent patterns out to tons and tons of shops trying to get them tied. Different manufacturers uh, finally landed on one who, when they, and, and truly, I mean, the flies have been quality enough. When they send me flies, I quit tying that pattern because I just fish the ones that the company has now. You know, they they don't fall apart and they're, at least for me, they're exactly what I was looking for. So we've been really happy with the, with the actual products um, personally. So we were like, you know what? Sounds good. Let's put it out there. So yeah, that's kind of how we got going. Today's episode is sponsored by Daiichi Fishing Hooks, a leader in the fly fishing industry and still the world's sharpest hook. Tempered with carbon-rich steel, Daiichi offers superior penetration without compromising the hook's structural integrity. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash Daiichi and check out what they have going and check out these killer hooks. That's Daiichi, D-A-I-I-C-H-I. So that's it. So mainly Blue Lion uh, is fly. Yeah, flies. I mean, you guys are selling flies specifically for now. Is it mainly still for kind of streamers, bass, or do you guys cover everything? We're starting to cover everything, especially over the last couple of years with my move to Salt Lake. I obviously have been doing a lot more trout fishing here. I've always had a really big interest in redfish as well. I love red fishing. So actually last year, we just released our first redfish patterns as well. So mostly still certainly uh, based around smallmouth and bass. We have a really large selection of bass flies. But starting to kind of ramp up those sculpin patterns and that kind of stuff for trout, which still work great for bass. And yeah, like I just said, there we're we're starting to starting to kind of do some stuff with uh, with saltwater as well. With saltwater, nice, nice, yeah. And we've heard that quite a bit on people that have had you know small or large businesses and fly timing from everybody from you know just a few flies up to like umqua, you know, talking about yeah. the flies. But it sounds like there's like unlimited um, you know like demand for flies. Like anybody could start a company around flies and you could sell them. It sounds like, have you guys found that it's pretty, you know, I don't know if easy is the right word, but you know, you can sell as many flies as you need to. Um, we definitely has been, has been tough. I think there's a really hard line between, you know, we do get our flies mass produced. It's not something that I could ever be able to tie enough of myself. Yeah. Right. And you know, time and the time and money that it would take to produce them, you know, myself is, it's not full-time a scalable. Job. Yeah. I mean, certainly blue line is a full-time job, Yeah, but it's not very scalable for a, a single individual to be able to tie that many flies. 
Yeah. Especially like now that we're starting to dip into like getting wholesale orders and supplying shops and, and that kind of stuff is, uh, is definitely tough. But what you said is a hundred percent true that people are always looking for good flies. And I think that's the really cool thing about like Instagram and social media is that everybody's able to share these new patterns. And even when we were starting in 2017, you know, like Instagram didn't exist. YouTube wasn't, you know, it was just cat videos on YouTube. All right. And uh, (laughs) so it was, uh, you know, even sharing that information is so much easier now that, you know, either people learning to tie or people who are interested in buying, you know, kind of these more interesting one-off patterns is, Mm. is definitely, uh, definitely on the rise. Yeah. Nice. Well, I want to touch on a little on the small mouth and some of the streamers and and maybe we could focus it on, go back to Alabama and talk about, you know, what your home waters were back there. You know, maybe let's, let's start there. If you were going to be heading back, um, to fish with uh, hobo Steve, what would you guys be? Are there some waters out there that aren't so secret you could talk about a little bit here? Uh, yeah, there's a river that runs right through the middle of, uh, of Huntsville called the Flint river. Um, we grew up fishing that Steven used to live on the, on the Flint river in his backyard. And I used to live really close where, uh, that's where my mom would always drop me off when she was on the way to, uh, you know, going to do an errands or whatever. Yeah. So we used to fish that a ton. Um, and then there's quite a bit of stuff once we got a little older, started driving, I mean, there's so many, there's so much water in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee that's very close by. It's really interesting when I bring, you know, people from the industry, folks from out West that I've met back home. Yeah. It's just like every like three minutes you're driving across a Creek or a river right. and they're like, well, what about that one? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's okay. And then, you know, five minutes later, it's like, oh, well, here's another one we could fish here. And it's like, no, nah, we're going to keep going. Um, yeah. So it's, there's so much water to explore that you would never, ever get tired of it. So, I mean, you could check out a new creek every day for a year in, right, in, yeah. in your area. And you guys have done, and you do a lot mostly when you're out there, is this kind of out of rafts? That looks like you've done quite a bit of that. Yeah, the raft, once I got a raft, it really kind of opened up. Uh, it totally changed the game for me. We used to fish like kayaks and canoes or, or the, the mode of transportation in those parts, but I'm a big dude and I'm not very coordinated. There's probably people who are listening to this who this doesn't apply to. I cannot stand up and fish out of a canoe or a, or a kayak. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm definitely more of a, a raft person. I, I agree with you. It's, I'm just like out of balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's because I'm, I admittedly am a little top heavy, um, <laughs> but I've tried all the fishing kayaks and canoes and, and none of them worked for me. But rafts are not a thing really back in the Southeast. I came out West and saw everyone had rafts. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap, why in the world does the Southeast not know about this technology? (laughs) And uh, so I ended up buying a raft out of, uh, it was actually, it was a whitewater raft, which now whitewater rafting does exist. There's some whitewater rafting areas in like North Georgia, things like that. Uh I ended up picking up a raft on uh, Craigslist and uh, bought, uh, hopped online at NRS and ordered like the, the most basic rowing frame that they had. I knew nothing about this stuff. Sure, I just seen people on the Madison or whatever floating in these rafts. And I was like, Oh dang, I got to figure this out. So ordered a rowing frame, put that thing together, taught myself to row, started rowing. And then when I was finally able to number one, access, you know, just the amount of water that you can cover in a raft versus on foot. And then you could stand 
in the best spot in the river to cast, you know, so I wasn't making, you know, having to cast from one bank or the other, Mm. or, you know, climb up on a rock and try to cast or whatever. I could actually float into the right position. Uh, You know, you can anchor up in the middle of the river, which, you know, I, I still think, I know there's little systems and stuff on kayaks, but yeah, I mean, you know, there is nothing that beats like uh, the, you know, a raft anchor system standing on that thing. Once I really started doing that, that's when my fishing totally changed for the better. There it is. Yeah, that's so cool. And it, it's amazing. And this was probably what, like uh, within the last five years that there weren't a lot. Are you seeing more rafts out there now? Yeah, you see more rafts. I don't know if that's due to us or our, our videos or right. maybe just Instagram. More and more people are, you know, being able to see what other people are using, what people are doing out west. It's just easier to connect with people these days. I don't know what it is, but yeah, you start seeing some rafts. The cool thing about the Southeast, though, is that I can still go fish all day. I could still go fish all month and not see another fly fisherman in some of the areas that we go to, which is pretty cool. But on the flip side, it is also cool to me that I can also float down a river, a certain, you know, maybe a bigger known, a more well-known area and see a couple people who are fly fishing. Yeah. And, you know, even five years ago, I probably, I, you wouldn't have seen that. Yeah, so gotcha. definitely cool that you can, you know, start seeing more and more people who are interested in fly fishing and fly fishing for warm water species and people who are starting to use rafts as well to actually, you know, target these fish. So pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. That is cool. Yeah, we've done, I'm a big kind of a drift boat and raft geek. So we, we did a whole season, a mini series on like the history of drift boats and had some raft oh, yeah. episodes. And so it's, it's a really cool industry. As you know, yeah, you're in now Salt Lake. I mean, there's tons of companies, I think NRS or air is in Idaho, you know, right there. Yeah. There are companies. Yeah. 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 They're in Idaho here in Salt Lake is uh, Flycraft. Oh, Flycraft. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're down the street from me and, uh, work with those guys a little bit. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Nice. So going back to like Huntsville and, and so would you be floating the river? You mentioned, um, the Flint right now, is that one that you're floating in a raft or are you more hitting like the Tennessee or other bigger rivers? That's one that you'd need a, uh, that we would float in a raft especially just because we can cover, you know, eight miles in a day to really be able to find the the players, right? The yeah. bass who are, who are hungry and willing to eat. It certainly is weightable as well. Like I said, we kind of grew up waiting it. Yeah. The Tennessee is too, way too big it's for huge. a raft. Okay. Um, it's, it's huge by the time you get down there. Gotcha. That's a river that we, uh, you would need a bass boat on um, or a John boat or something, you know, something more so along those lines, like a motorboat. So we do bass fish on the lake still quite a bit. We put out a couple, we've put a couple videos out about fishing, you know, like the conventional lake with Uh our fly rods. We do good. We do that every once in a while, but it's just not my love and my passion. Like, you know, river smallmouth are. Right. And is this uh, Gunnersville Lake or what? Yeah. 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 So that would be Gunnersville. Yeah. So that's basically the part of the Tennessee that's, um, is that like a natural lake? No, no. Uh, There's a few dams along the Tennessee River. Um, the whole system that they, uh, still use for transport. Um, you know, you still see a lot of barges and things like that on the Tennessee river, but yeah, it's a reservoir dam. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Okay. Nice. So, so let's just take it uh, like the Flint. So if you were, and I've seen some of those videos, we'll put a link to the, in the show notes to your YouTube channel, some of that stuff. But so you put in, how you talked about finding fish. What is the first step of somebody's hopping in there in a raft or on foot? you know, how are you guys finding those bass? Yeah. So one of the first things that we would look for, especially if you're kind of an experienced trout guy, is that smallmouth live at the same spot that a brown trout is going to live. 
hmm. which is pretty cool for uh, folks who you know come fish with me who are really used to trout fishing. But mm-hmm. we're really looking for a change in the water, uh, like transitional water. I hear that quite a bit, but that's going to be either like a deep pool with a riffle or a riffle with a side, you know, a slow eddy beside it mm. or, you know, some boulders that are creating like a, a, a fast ripple with a hydraulic around it. Or we're looking for structure, which would be like a big boulder, a big log, uh, a big tree down in the water or cover, which would be like overhanging trees over the water. Right. So the best cast that you could make is the more of those things that you can pair together into one cast. Gotcha. So if you could throw it under a log, under a tree, that's like the place those bass are going to be. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Or if you could have find a rock that is, you know, in transitional water, maybe even the rock is causing the transitional water. You have the ripple coming on one side, slow water on the backside of a rock. That's going to be, you know, a great cast. And then even plus one, if it's under a tree, uh, you know, under yeah. a big tree. Limb. Right. So yeah, the more of that that you can pair together into each individual cast, the more success you're going to have. Okay. That's it. And then when you make that cast, uh, what's that look like? What is your stripping technique? And we're talking, you probably have a big streamer on when you're doing this. So a lot of times we are using the big streamers. I typically like to use seven weights so that we can actually get those streamers where they need to be. Typically also using sink tip lines so that you can get that streamer at least as deep as possible pretty quick. So that if you cast in there next to that log, next to that rock, it'll actually sink a little bit. The coolest thing for us is that our water is very clear in that area. And we typically are fishing light colored streamers. So even though we don't get to fish top water, our eats are still very visual because you still get to, you're still going to be able to see your fly. And a lot of times you'll be able to watch that fish come out and actually hunt, which is just a ton of fun. Wow. So you make the cast and then you're, and talk about that. What does that look like with the stripping in? And maybe if you're seeing that fish. Yeah. So our casting is, you know, we kind of, everything's very overgrown. Typically you don't have a ton of back cast room. Our casting technique is like, is, is there's really no technique other than if it works. There's no like Hmm. the right or wrong. It's just try to, if, if your fly can land in the right spot, you did it right. Yeah. So you guys have all sorts of like uh, casts you've made up that are probably <laughs> whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot of different things like, you know, being able to cast really low sidearms so that you can actually throw flies up underneath the trees and branches. Um, you know, actually there's some casts where you can, instead of throwing a loop that's overhand, you throw a loop that's actually underhand. So you'll actually bring the fly underneath your rod. Um, to be able to cast up. So we have quite a few pretty weird casts that we'll use to be able to get flies back where they need to be. Once that fly lands, I've definitely found it's important to start stripping immediately. Hmm. Like it's not one of those things where you can let that fly sit, you know, have a minute, rearrange your line on your reel, rearrange, you know, get a sip of your drink real quick and then start fishing. It's like when that thing lands, if you can move that, even we'll start sh- start the strip while the fly is still in the air. Oh, wow. Because if you can make that, you know, big bait fish will hit the water and will, uh, you know, th- those fish will kind of come look. Uh, it'll definitely grab attention. And smallmouth are fun because they are, uh, they can be extremely aggressive. And so instead of, Typically, instead of spooking, a lot of times they'll want to see what made that noise. 
And uh, if they'll look up and see your your bait fish, but it's just sitting there, they may not think that that thing's real. But if that thing lands, makes a splash, and all of a sudden you're already stripping it, that bass may get on it, I mean, just like immediately. So we definitely see that. Sometimes you'll, of course, want to, if you're fishing some deeper structure, you need to cast as far back as you can so that you give that fly a little bit of time to sink before it gets to the structure where you think the bass is actually holding. At that point, you know, we like kind of a short, hard strip so that it really makes that fly have the most movement, but can cover the least amount of distance. Um, So we have a couple flies that are, you know, we really focus on like articulated patterns. We want our flies to be able to have a ton of movement so that they can move a lot without covering a ton of, you know, space. So that when you do throw in behind that log or that rock, you can really work that thing hard, get it to move a ton, but you don't have to strip it out of the strike zone to get it to move a lot. Right. So that's really what we're looking for. Gotcha. And what are a couple of those flies that would be, have a lot of movement, the articulated like names you guys have there? Probably our most popular one would be like the Cooter Brown is, uh, is one. It's a deer hair head fly uh-huh. um, with a rattle. We also have the Meemaw which is a, a fly I guess we're relatively famous for. That one does extremely well. How do you spell that one? M-E-E-M-A-W. Okay. Yeah, the Meemaw. Nice. So that one does extremely well. It's got, a, it's got some dumbbell eyes, but also a spun head, like a spun wedge deer hair head. So the dumbbell eyes help get like a jigging movement where the dumbbell eye, or where the um, flat deer hair head kind of gets that side to side wiggle that you're looking for. So that one's a great one. Uh, we've also got a couple other bigger minnow patterns that work really well for that stuff. Both bass and trout, the buckhead minnow is one of my other favorites for throwing back behind rocks and logs that has a ton of movement that you don't have to cover a lot of water to make it, make it do its thing. Right, right, right. I see that. And I'm taking a look at the Mima, which is awesome. I mean, that's a cool thing. There is a lot of overlap. Like I think you said the, a lot of this could be used for trout fishing, right? I mean, there's some overlap there in streamers. And even I look at this, I'm like, well, that looks kind of like a cool steelhead fly, you know, like a streamer yeah, fly you could yeah. use, right, with the with the uh, the stinger hook and all that stuff. Um, okay, so that's it. So like you said, you are you think you see the fish, tuck it under the tree, under the log, and then you just want to strip fast and hard, quick strips, yeah. like strip, strip, like as fast, like, well, not maybe not as fast as you can, but talk about that. Are you doing this all the way into the boat and then you see the fish or are you just, you just continue with that same strip? Yeah. So once you, once you land that fly, I don't like to strip it very fast. I like to strip more like short, hard. Yeah. So a really short, but a hard strip so that it has a lot of movement, but isn't covering a ton of ground especially once you first make those casts up in like the sweet spot where that rock or log is. Um, So you'll start doing those strips, keeping that rod tip, of course, pretty low. I'm not a huge fan of putting my rod in the water from where we fish because Mm -hmm. there's so much stuff like down trees and stuff in the water that that's a good way to break a rod. But, Mm. uh, you know, make that cast, keep that rod tip low, start those kind of short, hard strips. Typically with us, those bass are going to get on it after probably three to four feet of stripping where they're sitting in those little pockets or holes, kind of what we talked about, like in that current, in that, Mm -hmm. you know, behind that seam or whatever. Yeah. A couple short hard strips. uh, If we don't have a fish on recast, 
Um, of course, then if you see the fish coming, truthfully, if my client sees the fish coming, the chances of them botching it are way higher. Oh, right. Um, if you keep your head down, you just, you know, you're just stripping, you're not paying attention to the fish. A lot of times, you know, they'll eat it. I mean, they hit like a freight train. It's not like a, just a little, you know, where they just pick at it. They'll hit it like a freight train and you know, you're, you're on, but if they see it and I'm, I'm a bad example of it myself, uh, but they'll see the fish coming and they'll want to do some, for some reason, you just want to do something different. Uh, you want to change your strip. You want to do something different with it. Or a lot of times you'll just miss the hook. You'll see the fish kind of coming at it and you'll try to set the hook before he's really eaten it mm, before right. you'd actually feel that, you know, that tension and slack take out of your line is just enough time for that fish to actually get that thing in its mouth and, you know, close its mouth around your fly versus uh, if you're watching that fish, you um, you know, so bass feed with like a suck and gape feeding method. Hmm. So they're where their jaw actually, you know, comes down and they will suck whatever it is. It, you know, creates a vacuum in front of their mouth that sucks the food in. Uh, so that's a different method than what like a brown trout uses. So you will, it's the same uh, method that a tarpon uses. Right. So you'll see that fish's mouth open. And a lot of people want to set that hook because you see that white, you see the mouth, you see them, you know, you you see all that happen. And, you know, a lot of people want to set the hook then. And uh, it's almost like those big brown trout with, you know, eating a big dry fly where it's like you got to let them come up, eat it and then go under with it before you set the hook. And so anyways, that's uh, yeah, it makes for a heck of a lot of fun when you can watch those things eat, but it definitely is almost a little bit of a trained thing, you know, and the brown trout, you know, brown trout dry fly guys will definitely tell you, you got to really let that thing eat, let him get it in its mouth, close his mouth and swim off with it before you set the hook. Right. That's it. Swim off. So literally, if you see that fish open its mouth, just don't do anything until literally, are you waiting till you actually feel something? And then, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just keep your head down, keep stripping. Um, and it's one of the toughest things to do. I mean, it's yeah. not easy when I'm guiding folks for small mouth. I know that is not an easy ask, but yeah, that's what you got to do. Nice. Nice. And you mentioned uh, a couple flies, the Cooter Brown, um, looking at here. What does that look like I, on these flies? Are you typically, is it, are you designing these kind of based on, you know, your kind of home waters there? Talk about how you think of fly design. Like how, how do you like, let's just take the Cooter Brown. It's kind of a, I guess it's kind of an articulate. It's got two hooks on it. Um, yeah. you know, how do you think of fly design differently than say others out there? So one of the biggest things for blue line and what we found kind of relating back to what I was saying earlier with the other flies on the market is I wanted to make sure all of our flies had a really, really quality hook. One of the things for our flies that we're really uh, big on is having a, a really quality hook. Like we said earlier that there are some trout flies on the market that are kind of just repurposed for bass. But one of the things I wanted to make sure is that my, my hooks have a wide enough gap a bass's mouth is like we were just talking about has mm. a different structure than a trout's mouth. Yeah. Um, the way that you are going to hook one is like a larger hook is going to be able to get a better purchase on a bass than, a, you know, a brown trout. So 
you're not just grabbing like the flesh on the inside of their mouth as much as you actually, the best hook that you're going to get is where it actually goes around their jaw. Um, similar to like a tarpon, getting it right in that corner pocket mm. on a tarpon's mouth is, you know, the best spot to hook one. It's going to be the same with a bass because a bass and a tarpon have the same jaw mechanism. So I like to have a larger hook that I start that I, just off the bat, I'll start with a larger hook. Second is that um, when I'm trying to design or develop a streamer, I want it to be able to have the most movement that it can have, but where I can make it cover the least amount of actual water distance. So essentially, I want to be able to cast it and it look like it's having a seizure <laughs> in the hole that I casted it. Yeah. So I want to make sure that it's got like that Mima has that real flat head on it or... Yeah. Uh, you know, the Cooter Brown has that flat head with a really good wiggle. The Buckhead has a really good, you know, uh, that zonker tail with the, you know, big round head on that thing uh, has a really great wiggle uh, in the water. The Conjurer, which is our, kind of our version of a, of a game changer, but added certainly some different, different elements in there that I think make it a little bit better for smallmouth fishing than a standard game changer that really kind of help allow that those flies to have a ton of movement without having to strip them, you know, distance. So number one, when I'm building streamers, that's kind of what I'm going for. Then we'll kind of go for shape. And I also love a lot of our streamers. We can kind of double duty. So one of the coolest things with that Meemaw is that because it's got those dumbbell eyes and that jigging kind of profile, you can actually, and one of my favorite bass colors is the uh, olive and orange. And that's great because it looks like a panfish or a brim, whatever, wherever you're at would call that fly or that fish. Um, kind of looks like a, a, uh, like a brim, but with those dumbbell eyes and that kind of jigging feature, it almost can also look like a crawfish as well. So if you let that thing jig all the way down, that head is going to sink and kind of put that flashy tail up um, with that color combo. So it's almost like if you're stripping it, it's going to look like a fit, like a bait fish. If you let it sit, it's going to look like a crawfish. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, I guess that's kind of another thing that I think of is like, is there a way that we can double duty this fly? Yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah. So, and then you have some of these, right? Some large, like flat, I don't know if that's flashaboo, but lots of movement where when it, like you said, it sinks in the water, stuff's floating around and kind of going crazy. That's kind of part of the idea. Yeah, for sure. That fly actually was developed to swing the Mima, like you, like you said. Um, but then it just kind of turned out that that fly is a great one to strip as well. And, uh, has quickly turned into one of our favorite flies that we've ever developed. Yeah. Awesome. And, and what about the, um, uh, I guess at BR Pat's tickle monster, is that, <laughs> is that, is that a good one? <laughs> yeah, that's the, I guess this is kind of a bold statement here, but that is the best crawfish fly that exists in planet earth. In my opinion, it's big. It's not a small fly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not a small fish fly. How big is it? What's a typical length? So it's, uh, it's like four and a half, five inches. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a big, um, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it's not a small fly. It is very, very heavy. One of our buddy, Bryant Patterson, he loves fishing crawfish flies. And this fly actually kind of has a cool backstory. He told me, he was like, hey, I want a fly that does this. 
And it took me three or four, I think it was four summers. Hmm. I was trying to develop that fly that he had kind of requested. And I'd gotten kind of close, but nothing that was like, oh yeah, this is it. He wanted an articulated crawfish that was heavy enough, wrote hook point up, and uh, that could get out of log jams and rock jams really easily. And uh, that's kind of the point of having that articulated in there. Pretty much, you know, something like our conjurer or like the Cooter Brown style, having that articulation is for movement. Yeah. The tickle monster, actually, the articulation helps you be able to get it out of rocks and logs. Gotcha. So I finally developed that thing. I sent him a picture of it and I, I can't remember what he said. I think he's like, oh yeah, that's it. I mailed him a few of them. And that summer, that was two or three years ago now, that summer, like him, myself and Steven would just fight over tickle monsters <laughs> because they are not easy to tie at all. They have a lot of material there. It is not a cheap or easy fly to tie. Um, and so we were, you know, we were swimming after these tickle monsters when we would get, right. when we would get them stuck too bad. But the big deal on that fly, number one, it, I mean, it just works. But then as long as you can get upriver of it, whether you're in a boat, if you're waiting, if you get upriver of it and pop it backwards, it'll come out the oh, majority of the time. Gotcha. Pop it backwards. Yeah. 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 So that one, that one was a, uh, that first summer that we actually truly fished that fly, it caught so many big fish that it just wasn't even funny. And so anyways, I named it after Bryant because it was, uh, it was his idea. It was his pattern. He just tasked me with creating it. It took me about four years to get it figured out. That's it. That's it. And how would you fish that one differently than like the other flies we talked about? Let that just sink to the bottom. Yeah. So we'll fish that. Typically I like fishing an eight weight with that fly because it is so heavy Hmm. and we'll also use a sink tip line with it. So that thing has some the like largest dumbbell eyes that you can purchase. Hmm. So you put those on the end plus a sink tip line. That thing will get down to the bottom very quick. You fish it up. You can fish it up around logs and, and, and rocks. It's so deadly because you can use it the same way that we were talking about fishing our, you know, some of our other streamers. But when you get to what we would, what we were on the boat would refer to as a tickle monster hole. Hmm. You know, would be like a big deep hole, a uh, maybe a shallow run dropping into a big deep hole. Oh yeah, or a um, kind of a bigger run with some current with like a tree down beside the hole. And so you're gonna t- kind of toss that thing typically up kind of behind the boat because you want to pull it down river. Oh, sure. so if you're fishing out of the boat, you're going to be casting typically pretty far up behind you, or if you're waiting, you're going to be casting more upstream. And let that thing sink down to the bottom and kind of bump it. And the reason it's called the tickle monster is that's how we fish crawfish patterns. Uh, Whether it's a tickle monster like the foam back craw or one of our other ones, you want to kind of be feeling that bump. And so it's like tickling the bottom. Hmm. And, you know, it'll be kind of bouncing along. It'll go bump, 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 you know, as it's kind of ticking bottom. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I don't know how to describe it in words on a podcast to you, (laughs) but one of those bumps will just feel different. Right. Right. And when it feels different, you set the hook. That's it. I was thinking first you're, you're, you're tickling the fish, but right. But that's, it's more tickle in the bottom. Yeah. It just tickles the bottom. And, uh, you know, Brian's a, he's got like the driest, funniest sense of humor of anyone that I know. 
And he also named it the tickle monster because yeah. it's just, it's just tickling the bottom. And so right. when you're fishing, it just tick, 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 tick. And, uh, that's a great fly pattern. Yeah. Awesome. And, and just looking at some of these other patterns, you mentioned the foam back crawl, which is, is, um, a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, the different there with the foam back is obviously it's got foam. Do you fish that? Or like you said, these are all fished kind of the same sort of thing. Are you tickling the bottom with that one too? Yeah. Yeah. Tickle the bottom. It does have some really heavy dumbbell eyes. The foam works well because it, uh, always rides hook point up because yeah. you have the, the foam on the one side with the hook point, And then you have some really heavy dumbbell eyes on the other side of the hook. So it always rides the exact same. The foam back crawl is a good one to strip, but I don't love to admit that we do it, but we do. We'll run what we call the bobber rig for smallmouth. If smallmouth are early, early and late season, if they're not really chasing bait fish, we nymph streamers for them. And nymphing a crawfish pattern for bass or trout is incredibly effective. Um, and I'm sure you probably know, because I think you alluded to something earlier about fishing craws for trout. Not a lot of people do it. And uh, it's criminal that more trout fishermen don't fish crawfish patterns for, for trout. Huh. There you go. And uh, the foam back craw, I really developed that is is one of my best guide flies because the tickle monster, truthfully, like I said, it is not easy to cast. Uh, you got to have someone who knows how to cast a, a fly to be able to fish that fly. The foam back craw works great because I can put it on a bobber rig and run that crawfish off a bobber. And uh, same kind of thing. It's just like you were nymphing for trout you know, running it through the deeper holes, deeper pockets up next to rocks and logs. And, uh, man, that thing is, that thing is deadly. Uh, so, yeah, we had a guest on recently, but I think we were talking more largemouth bass, but he was talking about the, uh, doing the popper dropper, we called it. Oh know? yeah. So, so like you could probably do that. What are you guys using for indicators when you're running that rig? Uh, the, like the biggest airlock or, yeah. uh, uh, what's that new one? The uh, Oros. Oh, Okay. I like that new Oros one, uh, yep. you know, lay the leader in it, screw it on, um, use the bigger ones and yeah, we'll drop that, put that foam back crawl off of it. And yeah, that is super deadly. Wow. This is sweet. Yeah. The foam back looks just awesome. I could see, I mean, it almost looks like it's alive just looking at it on, on the website. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Nice. And, and yeah. every once in a while too, what's, uh, I was actually, uh, spent a month back home guiding smallmouth trips this year and, uh, the foam back craw really worked well for on a couple client days. Uh, we were throwing bait fish really, you know, and had some guys in the boat who really wanted to streamer fish. We were throwing bait fish and not having a lot of luck. Finally caught one. And as we were netting it, it spit up a crawfish. And it's funny. I've got a photo of it. Looks the exact same as that foam back craw when it's wet. And I was like, guys, y'all, y'all, you're not going to want to hear this, but if one of y'all would put on a bobber rig, we would, <laughs> you know, you would start tearing them up. And I had two guys in the boat. One of them was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And I mean, right. he started outfishing the other one like six to one. And that's it. Finally, the other guy was like, all right, you know, give me that. <laughs> Amazing. This is good stuff. Well, yeah. and if somebody's listening and we're not going to, you got a ton of flies. We just touched on the surface here. But if somebody wanted to grab, like, say, a bass setup, is that what the full send, the three quarters, is that where they can get a package? Or what would you recommend if somebody wants to get a few different patterns that kind of cover smallmouth bass, streamers, yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, and kind of see some stuff. The half send and the or the, the quarter, the half, or the three quarter. The quarter, the half, or the three quarter are great. 
I don't put anything too big in there because if I, a lot of folks haven't jump off the deep end and don't have, you know, six, seven, eight weight, more dedicated streamer setups. Those are mostly what we call our five weight friendly flies. Gotcha. You know, Clouser minnows. We've got, you know, two variants of a Clouser that I really like that have a lot of movement. A couple of the poppers that we do sell, a couple of the lighter weight flies are going to be in those bundles that we sell. And the full send has maybe some that are a little bigger, plus some that are probably a little smaller as well. But uh, I don't put the bigger stuff that we've talked about in this podcast in the bundles, just because I kind of also understand probably it's a little bit of a different customer who is interested in, you know, the bundles are great. You get to buy, you know, try a bunch of our fly patterns, see what we're about, um, you know, give us a shot. But some of these other fly patterns, like the Cooter Brown, the reason I don't put them in the bundle is because that's going to be a hard fly to cast on a five weight. Yeah. And we typically, like I said, do fish that on a sinking tip fly line. So I don't want someone to be able to buy that fly and then be kind of upset. Like, well, what the heck? I can't even throw this thing um, on the rod that I own. So yeah. um, th- that we do sell those kind of all a cart uh, separate of those bundles. But the bundles are great. They're an awesome place to start with us, kind of see what we're about, you know, poke around on our website and order something. Uh, the bundles are great. You know, you can add on a fly box. We give you a discount if you put them in a fly box or whatever. And uh, yeah, we definitely like like the bundles and they sell very well. But yeah, if you do have a, that dedicated uh, setup, you do have, you know, a sink tip, whatever line, we definitely have some other flies for you to try. Perfect. And you mentioned uh, the lines a couple times. What is the sinking line? Do you guys use a bunch of different types? Or if somebody wanted to pick up a good line for smallmouth, what would you recommend? Yeah, yeah. We've been selling and doing really well with the uh, the Rio Predator. Mm. Uh, Rio's lines have actually gotten a whole lot better in the last like two or three years. And one of my buddies is a far bank rep. And he was like, no, you need to try our line again. Tried it. And I was like, yeah, this is actually pretty good. Um so I've been using the Predator quite a bit. I like it with a uh, the fast sink. Uh, I think it's a six inches per second yeah. sink tip. Gotcha. I for a lot of the stuff we fish, it's like I have to have a floating a floating running line with a sinking head because we fish over a lot of shelves, over a lot of structure, and having the floating line on the back end helps me actually be able to like mend that line. I can mend the sink tip and things versus having like a full sink line. Yeah. So sink tips are, are integral for us, but I also, I fished the SA, you know, it's, I think that's the most popular selling line right now is the SA sonar Titan. Mm. We have that on our side as well. And in it, it does well, but I think I like the predator from Rio a little bit better. Yeah. The predator. Awesome. Well, that gives us a good starting point. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, good. So, and I'm sure there's lots of different lines and depending on your situation, but, uh, where you guys are fishing, well, we mentioned the, the river at the start, the Flint, is that one that sounds like a river that's pretty weightable, um, but has some deep slots. Is that kind of how that looks? Yeah, definitely a weightable river with some deep holes. Uh, great spot. If you have just like even a kayak or a canoe, uh, this is how I used to fish it was float down the river. And then when you see a spot you want to wade, just hop out, you know, beach it on a, you know, a gravel bar, whatever, beach it, hop out and wade. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks around have a river that's similar, uh, to that. Yeah. Perfect. Nice. Well, let's take it out of here in a sec. And we usually do this with, uh, our shout out segment today. We're going to talk fly shops. Cause I know you mentioned at the start, there wasn't a lot of fly shops, 
um, in, yeah. in that area, at least back in time. But today, this one's presented by Togan's Fly Shop. That's one of our partners here. Um, they actually have a YouTube channel as well, do some good stuff online, have their own little cult-like following as well. So shout out to uh, Togan's today. But talk about that. What, what like your fly shop now, maybe talk about where you're at now and what your local fly shop is back uh, in Huntsville. Are there any shops there now? No, no, there's no. still really not. The shop that I probably like the most in the Southeast is, uh, headed up to, uh, Nashville, uh, downtown Nashville has a shop called fly South. Those guys are awesome. When you get to the kind of level of tying I'm at, it's really hard to get natural materials. I don't like ordering like bucktails, even through, you know, right. all, even through distributors. I, I don't, I typically don't do it. Uh, but fly South does a lot of like custom bucktails that they'll dye and stuff themselves. So I still call fly South quite a bit and have them mail me some of their bucktails <laughs> for, you know, stuff that I'm tying. Yeah. Uh, it's a great shop. It used to be kind of like a, a, a whole day for us. Cause we'd hop in the car, you know, it's like a two hour drive from us to go to a fly shop from Huntsville. Yeah. Yeah. So we drive up there, go to fly South and then across the street is Hattie B's hot chicken. Hmm. And so, you know, go get some Nashville hot chicken. Oh, nice. And, and go, ah. go visit Fly South. Amazing. It was like a, like a pilgrimage. If you ever really needed to pick something up, they were the guys to go see. Yeah, we're going to hit that up. I'm, I'm planning. <laughs> I haven't been there yet, but I'm, I'm, the Southeast is obviously a place I want to spend more time in. There's just all, we did an episode on uh, red eye bass uh, oh, yeah. recently. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think, uh, yeah, I think, and you're working with some, I think, is it uh, Ben Meadows with like dorsal? Oh yeah. Yeah. Ben's a good dude. Yeah, Ben, I think we were working on something here recently, but yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of good stuff going down there. I mean, even though you're in, you know, Salt Lake now, I mean, I, it feels like that part of the world, what's your take on it? Even though there's not a fly shop down there, do you see that growing quite a bit in Alabama and that part of the world and the fly game? You know, it's been growing a ton uh, yeah. with like, uh, and you know, quite a few of the, of, uh, of my buddies down there have been doing some really cool stuff. Like Ben with Dorsal has been making a lot of great videos about bass bass on fly fishing specific uh stuff and then our buddy matt lewis the you know dr red eye yeah that's him yeah 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 he's done he's done a ton of stuff for the bass fishing world uh making bass fishing cool yep. fly fishing cool to people really really cool how he's been introducing so many people to actually go catching bass on flies and really kind of turning around uh whatever the you know take on people's bass fishing is from out West is like, you know, conventional big bass boats. Right. And really cool that he's kind of, you know, those guys are kind of changing the perception of bass fishing in, you know, fly fishermen's eyes uh, yeah. is actually, has been really cool to see. That is cool. Yeah. We'll put a link out. Um, it was uh, red eye bass with Matt Lewis, uh, episode uh, five sixteen. So we did a great episode on that and um, got some of the insight there. Um, good. So, well, let's, uh, and I had a couple other quick ones, then we'll take it out of here, but let, let's yeah. go back to the Isuzu. I don't want to miss that because I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, I've had uh, issues with trucks and things over the years and I love the four buys. My dad used to have this old Jeep Wagoneer way back in the day. Oh, yeah. And, uh, so I always, I, I was never like a big off-roader thing, but I've always kind of loved it. Talk about that Isuzu. You had a recent video where you guys took it out into some streams out, I think in Utah. Um, yeah. so is overlanding, is that something you got like a, just a love of yours, a passion? Yeah, kind of just more of a personal passion thing. I always have to have a project going. No, whatever it is, separate of, you know, work. And now that yeah. work is work is fly fishing now, I still have to have a passion project. And, you know, obviously used to be Blue Line was the passion project. And now that Blue Line is full time, I'm like, man, I you know, I gotta have something else that's outside of the fishing world that I, I, I wanna do. So I've actually truthfully 
uh, I'll tell your listeners this. I am a massive Land Rover nerd. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I've had 30, I've owned 30, it's like 30 something Land Rovers in the past 15 years. No kidding. 30 Land, the, 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 the English, yeah. right? The Land Rovers, the yeah. English. Yeah. 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 Um, wow. Huge, huge nerd for them. Love them. Been buying and selling them for a long time. That's cool. Well, tell me this about Land Rover. I always have this question. Well, Land Rover, Range Rover, right? That's all the same same company. Yep, yep, same thing. So you see these things out there. They look amazing. I mean, they look like these, especially these new ones. They all look like they're, they seem like they're always ahead of the game. But I always thought maybe you heard that they were kind of maybe the car that breaks down. Is that the case <laughs> or is it actually a good, reliable car? Um, You know, so... I don't know how interested your followers are going to be in this, but here you go. I'm going to get up on my soapbox for just one sec. Let's hear it. All right. So what happened is this is more so I don't buy new ones. I'm not, you know, I'm more into the older trucks. Sure. So the ones that I bought, I've never had issues with. And I'll tell you part of the issue is what has happened with Land Rover is for a while they dropped off so heavily in price and the value of the vehicle depreciated so hard that doing the maintenance on them wasn't really worth it to the current owner. So a lot of the trucks kind of got neglected maintenance wise. Then uh, they kind of became in, came in disrepair. Nowadays, it's hard to find one that has a really good service history because the value of the truck was just next to nothing for there for a while. And now that they're becoming, you know, vintage and cool again, Mm. it's, uh, you know, the values are, are starting to go up and people are starting to find ones that they're redoing. But just like anything, if the maintenance hasn't been, you know, done and kept up on them, yeah. then they can become unreliable. I knock on wood have never had one that was unreliable, yeah. but you know, I kind of know what to look for and how to buy them. And, you know, I've, I've been doing pretty good, sure. with it. but I think the deal there is that, you know, I don't think like Jeep Wranglers or whatever, the bottom never really fell out on those. Mm. Um, so it was always worth, oh, well, you know, the car's still worth 10 grand. Of course, sure. I'm going to, you know, keep replacing oil and doing all the stuff to it, you know, that, that needs to be done. So I do think they're a little more temperamental that as long as you do the maintenance, as long as you keep them up and keep them right, there's some of the, truthfully, some of just the, the most capable off-road cars I've ever been in. Yeah. Yeah. And they're good yeah. off-road. Right. Right. And, and the Suzu is kind of unique too. Do they still make a car, a Suzu out there? They do, but it's only sold overseas. Oh, okay. Um, they don't sell, or they do sell some in the U.S., but it's only that box truck thing that you see. The box truck, okay. Yeah, it's like a cab over truck is like the only thing that they still sell in the U.S., I think. Um, I wanted the Zuzu for a couple reasons. One is because I didn't want to get in this whole like Jeep and Toyota and Land Rover and, you know, I didn't want to get in any of that in my videos. And the Zuzu is like, no one can say anything because it's an Azuzu that I bought for $1,500 off of, you know, Facebook. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, great. Your new Tacoma is better off road, but you spent 40 grand on a new Tacoma and I yeah. bought a Azuzu off Facebook for 1500 bucks. So, yeah. so I wanted something that was going to be, you know, that was going to be a project. And I thought the Azuzu worked because it looked, it just looks the part. It I does. think they're cool. I've never had a, had a Japanese uh, well, I've never really owned a Japanese car like this in the past anyways, but I just thought it was really cool, unique, weird, eclectic car. And uh, I don't know. I just wanted it. Yeah, it is. I've, I've always kind of liked that. Yeah, it's kind of that it's the boxy, you know, car. Yeah, it just seems like it's unique. It's not it's not a Jeep. 
it's got its own little thing going. So good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. And they could track this. Like, uh, the are you guys going to have more YouTube videos of tracking the the Isuzu and yeah. upgrading it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we have three f- videos out about the Isuzu now. We have one, well, uh, I guess kind of four. We have one kind of showing about where we bought it and introducing people to it. One where we took it out on our first fishing trip. Uh, another one talking about the build, what we did different. Uh, and there's a, it's kind of like half build and half maintenance, what we had to do to the car once we got it and once, and and then how we kind of upgraded it and got it ready. And then we just put out our second film with it, where uh, that's the one that you uh, mentioned, where we took yeah. it overlanding here in Utah. So big plans, definitely want to continue doing it. It's a fun project and I, I really enjoy it. Awesome. And, and just tell me uh, one last thing before we get out of here in, you know, the next kind of we're heading into looking at 24. Like what, what do you, as you look out to 2024, anything new coming up for you guys we can expect at Blue Line or do you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're currently, uh, because we have been here in this, in, uh, I've been out West here over the past few years, we have been developing, uh, at least a run of dry flies and nymphs, uh, mm. you know, more kind of true trout stuff mm-hmm. that, uh, we're, we're going to be bringing out. Uh, we're going to be stocking up more on our redfish stuff. We've got quite a few new bass patterns in the hopper that we haven't, uh, you know, haven't, brought out you know we've kind of have been focusing a lot on trout over the past couple years and haven't brought out as many bass specific flies so we do have some good bass flies coming and then uh here pretty soon uh within the next year or two uh we're gonna have offer a uh a local pickup option oh wow it's where you can actually uh where when we move Maybe not next year, maybe year after mm-hmm. um but pretty soon here we are gonna have our warehouse space have an area that's going to be open for a uh, local pickup in Utah. Well, so it's actually going to be in Boise. Oh, in Boise. Oh, right. Yeah. You're moving to Boise. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we're moving to Boise in the spring. So in the spring, it may not exactly be is uh, super quick, but we will have a local pickup option in Boise uh, before too long. Nice. Good. Yeah. There's definitely some people we've talked to in Boise. Uh, Pete Erickson is our uh, Euro nipping uh, guru, just won the gold medal. Shout yeah. out to Pete. And we did a trip with him over there. And uh, But he's in that area as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking forward to moving. I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Awesome. Nice, Adam. Well, I think, uh, yeah, we'll send everybody out to bluelineflies.com if they have questions for you and uh, want to dig in further. But uh, yeah, thanks for all your time today and, you know, digging in on this with, uh, you know, streamers and bass. I know this is going to be a, a popular one. So I appreciate your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dave, I definitely appreciate you uh, shooting me an email and asking me to be on the show. This was uh, definitely a lot of fun for me. You ever want to hop back on and talk about weird old trucks or yeah, yeah, <laughs> or streamer fishing? Holler at me. Yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> we have to follow up on the see this Isuzu uh, journey in the next couple of years. See what you guys have going. So, all right, all right, Adam, thanks Sounds a lot. Good. Thanks. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. 
We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.